Amen. Well, thank Tammy and Margaret and Renee with me. Thank you, ladies. Did you hear about those opportunities? Two ways that you can be part of what we're doing here at the church to care for kids in need. And it reminds me as well that today is Stand Sunday, which is a Sunday where churches around the world take the opportunity to think about how the church, the global, the big C church is caring for kids in need. And tonight here at the church, there'll be a prayer walk time from six to eight in the gym. And you can join into that and see and learn more about different ways that both locally and globally, lots of amazing ministries are caring for kids in need. And it always makes me think, we, we like to say a lot that we, you know, we do good works to build goodwill, to share good news. Because uh, the goal is that every kid we encounter, every person we encounter through the good work that uh, God would invite us to do, would get to hear the saving news of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for them. But I'm also reminded as we do that too, that even when that work does not produce the fruit of salvation, which will be our ultimate joy, that when Jesus talked about Caring for those in need in Matthew 25, one of the things he said about that was when you do it to the least of these, you've done it. Does anybody know? Done it unto me, which is his way of saying it's an act of worship. Just the, the, the act itself of caring for someone in need is an act of worship to me, so much so that I would say doing it to them is like you, you did it for me, unto me. And that in and of itself drives our heart towards God and towards those good works. So... Thanks for listening in today. It's uh, good to hear about those things. Now, turn to 1 John chapter 5 with me, if you would. And we're continuing in our study of 1 John. And if you're just kind of jumping in with us, you haven't been around, uh, your first time visiting with us, let me just kind of catch you up uh, just a very brief bit. As we're going through this uh, epistle, this letter from John the Apostle, he is writing to a group of believers. And his whole goal is that they would grow in their confidence that they actually know Jesus. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. They've, they've got some challenges on the horizon, some folks that had been part of their body. They've left, and they're really tempting them into believing some things about Jesus that, have not, that are not true. And so John is writing to them, and he's saying, Listen, stay the course, stay in what you believe. I, I want you to have confidence that you actually know God through Jesus, that you believe the truth about him. And so everything he's done in the letter has really been a, a, to that end or to that point. He's gonna continue to do that today as we look at now our second to last sermon. So next week will be our last sermon and then we're gonna go into our Advent season where we'll be thinking about the birth of Jesus and reflecting on the incarnate God um, and what that means for us in the world and how it's changed everything. So as we come to 1 John, now I'm gonna read the text to you in just a moment, but as I was preparing the text this week, I, just, I found myself thinking about, as a pastor, I get to officiate a, a number of funerals and you know what's interesting is when you first become a pastor, um, I remember the first time I did a funeral, I didn't even own a suit at the time. Some of you would be shocked to know that I own one now because you don't see one uh, on me all that often. Although every time I do a funeral, someone does tell me I look good in a suit. I'm told that every time. And I say, I'm so glad. Come to weddings and funerals and you'll see me in a suit. So uh, every time I officiate one, you know, I think back to early on. And when you're first doing officiating funerals, it feels weighty. It feels very daunting. And of course it is. It's important work. It's a sacred moment. One of the great privileges of being a pastor is getting to be present in moments of great joy and in great sorrow. It's a real privilege. Uh, but when you're younger in ministry, you're not always sure what to do with that or how to bear that weight well or how to come along folks in a way that's comforting. But one of the things over the years that I've learned and I find myself thinking about is when a, when a member of our body goes to be with the Lord, the thing I find myself thinking maybe more than anything else is what it must have been like for that brother or sister in the Lord 
to close their eyes for the last time on this side of eternity and then to open their eyes in the presence of the Lord. One of the things the scriptures say is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We put a lot of stock in that. We don't have to go through a limbo or a purgatory or more payment for sins or or anything else. But when when the blood of Jesus is paid for our sins because we've believed in him, we have this great confidence that when we close our eyes for the last time on this earth, we will open them in the presence of God. And 1 Corinthians 13 says, we now know in part and we see in part like looking dimly in a mirror, but when we pass from this life into the presence of God, then we see fully and know fully even as we are fully known. Isn't that a really rich promise? And I think about, and I, I can't prove any of that takes place, but I believe that it does because of the, what the word of God says. And what I think about when I think about our brothers and sisters is the joy of having everything that you have believed vindicated in one instant. That all that you'd hoped in, all that maybe even the world had said it's foolish for you in the midst of the trials you've endured or the sickness that you're facing or whatever it may be, the financial struggles. In the midst of that, it's kind of silly that you would cling to this sort of antiquated faith and all the things that we get beat up about in our lives, all the things that kind of jostle us, whether they be our emotions or somebody else kind of um, you know, needling us a little bit or whatever it may be, all those challenges in that moment are completely and utterly vindicated. Every bit of hope, completely satisfied. Every bit of faith, completely justified. Every part of what they have trusted in is now fully realized. Can you imagine what that must be like? Whenever I think about that, it makes me think of Psalm 116, verse 15, where the Lord says, precious in my sight, he says, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of one of his saints. And I've pondered that a lot. Have you ever pondered that text? Why is the death of one of the Lord's people precious to him? And we mourn the death of our loved ones. Some of you are probably mourning a very recent death, I would guess, even as you sit here this morning. But the Lord says it's precious to him. And I presume there's a, there's a handful of reasons, but probably chief among them, I, I have to imagine, is that that loved one, his child, is now with him, had been apart from him, and now is home. And we know the joy. If you have kids, you know the joy of having your kids come home after an absence, yes? What a joy that is. And so I presume that's part of it. So I always think about that and think about the joy of that kind of vindication. And I hope it enables me to be a greater comfort and a greater help in the midst of a, of a funeral. But when I think about that, then my mind often goes to Romans chapter five. And I want you to hear it because it, it's gonna relate to what we're gonna read in 1 John today about what brings this sort of sense of satisfaction and this really, this conviction that to believe what we believe is not foolish. To have our hearts compelled towards the Lord is not foolishness. Listen to Romans chapter five. It says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, not by works, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It'd be enough if he, st- if he just stopped there, right? He says we've been justified by believing, by faith, and then that's produced this peace and that peace is we, we're just filled with hope and that would be a sufficient thing to say. And then he goes on though in verse three and he says not only that, in other words, not just all that amazing stuff, but not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope 
And now listen to this last verse, because this is really the crux of it. And hope does not put us to shame. So what he's saying is, to have this hope that you would be delivered. Now he's talking about people, hope we have here and now. He's not talking about hope realized, like I was talking about with brothers and sisters who have passed out of death and into life. He's talking about hope now. And he's saying, it's not foolish. You're not, gonna, you're not foolish to have that hope. And look at what he says, why that's not foolish. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And here's what I want you to notice. That when Paul is writing here and he wants to vindicate hope and say, here's why your hope is not foolishness. Here's why believing in Jesus and his ability to, to grant you peace with God and eternal life. Here's why it's not foolish. He doesn't point to something that primarily appeals to the mind. To be sure, faith is rational, it's logical, it's reasonable, it's all true, and God is very much at work in our minds. But what does he point to? He points to the heart, doesn't he? There's an experience of love, he says, that the Spirit puts into your heart, and that's why you don't feel put to shame. That's why you don't feel foolish. Now, I say all that because our text today in 1 John, I hope that's not too, uh, like, sir, sir, you know, uh, I can't say the word circuitous. I can't even say it. <laughs> too winding a road. Use easier words, Trent, and life will be easy. It's, I hope it's not too winding a road just to get to this. As you go into 1 John, what we're gonna find in chapter five is he's gonna, in verse six through 12, he's gonna talk about these things that testify that Jesus is the son of God. And when we hear the word testify, often we think about a courtroom, right? Yes? You think about someone giving testimony, bearing witness, and you're thinking often what they're trying to do is create this airtight case uh, that proves innocence or guilt. And it's, it's sort of a logical endeavor. But what I want you to recognize is that the scriptures are not ill at ease in any way of bringing the heart and mind together in this really kind of way that just kind of swirls them all together. Because what John is really looking to do is not primarily make an airtight case that Jesus is the son of God from a logical standpoint, because the things he's gonna point to that testify, if you're not a believer in here today, you could look at those and go, yeah, but that's subjective. Like that could be your experience, it might not be mine. And that's a valid thing to respond to this. But what the scriptures are so comfortable doing all the time is bringing together the mind and the heart and trying to appeal to both at all times. Trying to speak to the heart and trying to speak to the mind. And the things we're gonna look at today that John's gonna say testify to the fact that Jesus is in fact God's son. Two of them are much more subjective. One is more objective. But both, I think, are all three are meant really to, to not at first and foremost get to our mind. They're meant to first and foremost get to our heart. In the same way that Paul says in Romans 5, it's the experience of the love of the Spirit that causes you to have your hope vindicated. It causes you to not feel ashamed for having that kind of hope. That's something you can't prove. It's just something that's in there. Do you see that? Yes? When you experience the love of God, it does something to you. When the Spirit brings that experience of love to you, it changes you. And what's so interesting is um, once you've had that experience, no one can pull you off of it. No one can convince you otherwise. It's been too rich, too deep, too deeply seated in you. And you, you are so steeped in it that he's saying, this is, can't be undone, can't unexperience that love. And John's gonna try and appeal to our heart today. So here's my thesis for you. Here's the big idea. 
I just want you to see in this text that you are not a fool for having your heart compelled by Jesus. For having your heart, not just your mind, yes, your mind, but also your heart compelled, your emotions compelled to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You are not foolish to believe that. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, my hope is that you would see that he's inviting you to believe that and that the, the scriptures would just, that you'd open your heart today and say, I'm, I'm open to um, these testimonies that we're gonna hear from these three entities, the spirit and the water and the blood. Those are the three things that John is gonna talk about. And so we'll look at those. I'll try and explain each of them to you. It's kind of an interesting turn of phrase that often gets a little confusing for us. So I'll try to make those simple for us. And uh, will you be open to the work of the Lord in your heart today, yes? All right, great. So let's read it together. First John chapter five, beginning in verse six, says this. It says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. And here's kind of the crux now. He says, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God, that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. You see what he's saying there is that the, God's testimony about his own son is the center of all that he says to the world. You don't believe anything rightly that God says if you don't believe first what he says about his son. That's the first thing. And then he says in verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. So John puts it very succinctly for us, and we're gonna look at these three testimonies, okay, of the, the spirit and the water and the blood and see how they testify. And so our, our work then is to embrace this truth, these testimonies that they give to us, all right? So let's look at the first one. The spirit testifies that Jesus is God's son. So the first appeal he makes is that these three testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. Now, in a moment, what you're gonna see is when he talks about the water and the blood, remember his opponents were essentially making an argument that Jesus was a human being who had been indwelt by the, the Son of God, the Spirit of the Son of God from heaven at his baptism when he was baptized, and then he'd lived his life being indwelt by that Spirit, but right before the cross, that Spirit of the Son of God had left him. So when he died, he died just a human. It wasn't God that died on the cross. It was just a human. And Paul is saying, I'm sorry, not Paul, John is saying, no. Jesus was the only son of God. You might wonder why he's so adamant about referring. Did you notice how many times he said the son of God, the son of God, the son of God, the testimony about the son of God? Because he's saying you, you need to understand that Jesus is fully divine and fully the son of God at all times throughout his entire life, born that way and died that way and remains the son of God. And so he's speaking to that. That's why he's getting at the testimony of the water and the blood and how those agree with the spirit. But first, let's think to ourselves, how does the spirit testify to our hearts 
that Jesus is the Son of God. And I, I wanna show you a couple of ways. So the first is for those of you who are not followers of Jesus. So Jesus, when he said, I'm gonna leave, it's actually, he said, it's actually better for you that I'm gonna leave, he said to the disciples, which is hard to imagine, yes? But the reason he says it's better for you that I would go is because when I go, I'll send my helper, I'll send the Holy Spirit. He says, that's gonna be a, a fuller experience. There's something about that that's beneficial to the church, so much so that he can say it's better that I go physically away so that the Spirit can then come and indwell in the hearts of believers. And in John 16, verse eight through 11, talking about the work of the Spirit, he says this. He says, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world. Now, the world, there are those who don't believe in Jesus. So that if this is you, this is for you now, right? And for any one of us who came to faith, this is something that happened in us. See if you can recognize it. You may not have felt, you know, maybe you didn't divine it this way and go, oh, it was this, then it was this, then it was this. But just listen to what he's saying the Spirit does in every person who comes to faith. He says, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world is judged. So let me just summarize what he said there. When he says, the Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna convict you regarding sin, what he means there is that he convinces every person that you, in fact, are a sinner in rebellion against God. That you, you don't come to salvation without first accepting that you don't sense a need for salvation until you see that you have offended and rebelled against a holy God who is perfectly righteous and you are perfectly unrighteous. And as a result, you are filled with and steeped in sin and deserve the penalty for sin. And the Spirit brings that conviction home to us, which is part of his work. And as uncomfortable as that feels, my counsel to you is don't resist that because resisting that prevents you from moving further down the road with God. And so the first thing he says, that's what the Spirit does. It convicts the world regarding sin. And then he says, convicts the world regarding righteousness. And he says, because I'm not going to be here anymore, essentially. And what he's saying is, when I lived on the earth, I was God's demonstration of perfect righteousness. I was the perfect human. There was no unrighteousness in me, but I'm now going away. So what the Spirit's gonna do is he's gonna convict you that before you would have looked at me and seen, I'm not like him. He's perfectly righteous, I'm not. And so when the Spirit comes, he'll do that same work. He will convince you in your heart and show you if you will open yourself to him, he will show you that your righteousness is incomplete. It's not a sufficient righteousness. It's not the kind of righteousness that can grant you access to God. That's why the scriptures tell us that our best works are like filthy rags in the presence of God. It doesn't mean they're not valuable. It means they could never earn salvation because they're incomplete, insufficient, always marred by our sin. Do you have the frustration where you, you do something good, but then you find in yourself some like selfish motive or some desire to make others know about it? And you just think, golly, I'm a mess. When are my motives gonna be pure? When am I actually going to be like pure through and through? Have you had, please tell me I'm not alone in this experience. I get so frustrated with myself. My best stuff is still like garbage. I'm like, it's the best. I mean, it's like the purest motives I could muster. And I know it's not like God is saying they're not pleased that I, that I did that, but yet I find this lack of humility in myself or this arrogance or this just, but I want others to know about it or I want to be thanked or I, you know, I want whatever. 
There's all kinds of stuff that goes through my mind. And I always think, God, I'm so sick of me. I'm just so sick of me. Terrell Owens said, I love me some me. Anybody? No Cowboys fans. Okay. There's so many days where I hate me some me. I just am so sick of having impure motives and impure thoughts and, and impure desires that even my best ones are so far from anything that could be called righteousness. That's what the Spirit does. He convicts us of that. So you need someone's righteousness that's not yours because yours could never be enough. And then the last thing he says is he convicts the world regarding judgment. In other words, that there's going to be a judgment. The Spirit is at work telling you, yeah, that unrighteousness, that sin, it has a penalty. It has a price. And you are living under the grace of God right now that you have not been judged. But there will come a day of judgment. And it will be final. And there will be no going back. There will be no more opportunity for repentance after that day. Let today be the day of salvation. Respond now. Listen to the conviction of the Spirit regarding sin. Listen to the conviction of the Spirit regarding your insufficient righteousness and turn from the judgment and you will be saved. That's what the Spirit does in the hearts of everyone who's ever come to faith. Now, you may not have delineated it in all those ways, but that's what he did in you if you came to faith. Now, let me ask you, for those of you who are not in the faith, a great question for you to wrestle with is this, is why do I feel moral conviction? Just ask yourself that question. Why is it, let's say you've done something, you've lied, cheated, stolen. First of all, what grounds do you base that being wrong on? If you consider that wrong, if you felt any sense of like conviction, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done that. Why do you feel that? Especially if you got ahead, didn't get caught and didn't hurt too many people doing it. Because there's lots of stuff we do that we could put in those categories. And so the question becomes, if you feel that conviction, why do you feel it? So the world's answer is some evolutionary process wherein you, you kind of needed to not offend other people so you have a tribe so that you don't get left alone so that you survive longer and pass along your genes. That's the, that's the world's answer. Here's the Christian worldview answer. The Holy Spirit is the one convicting you of that moral insufficiency. The reason you feel it is because the Spirit is at work in the world convicting the world about sin and righteousness and judgment. So I'll just invite you to consider that, at least consider it, right? That moral compunction doesn't come from nowhere. And it's not just societally laid on you. That's God himself at work so that you would seek and turn. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, the scripture there in John 16 goes on to say in verse 14, and he will, meaning the spirit, will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now he's talking primarily about all the things Jesus taught. The Spirit's gonna bring to mind all the things that I taught. But what's the first phrase there? What did you see? He will do what? He will glorify me. In other words, the Spirit is always at work in the world to glorify the person of Jesus. So when we talk about, when John is saying, hey, the Spirit testifies to you, believer, not just to the unbeliever, to you, the person who already believes this, the Spirit is testifying to you so that you would have confidence that you're not foolish to believe in him. He's testifying to you that Jesus is God's very son. Then what he's doing is he's glorifying Jesus by exalting him again and again and again in your inner person. That when you, this is why when we come together at worship, do you find that, that there are days where there's such a sensitivity in you 
that someone can just say the name Jesus and you wanna go to tears. That we sing together and we say, Jesus, we worship you, we crown him. Does something in you just almost like a tuning for it, just resonate when we sing that together, yes? It's because the Spirit's at work. That's not just because you're emotionally moved. It's not just because you are in a place of particular vulnerability. It's because when God's people gather, the Spirit moves among them. And what the Spirit always does is exalt the person of Jesus and glorify him and point us to him so that when we ponder him, think about him, it's the spirit that is constantly in you saying, do you see his glory? Do you see his perfection? Do you see his goodness? Do you see his compassion? Do you know he's present? Do you see the sufficiency of his blood? Do you see, do you see, do you see exalting Jesus always, all the time? And that inner witness of the spirit is there so that in moments where your faith is tested and challenged or um, someone is, is calling you foolish for holding to that, the Spirit is there and he is louder and stronger and wiser than any human voice that would come against you. You see that? Isn't the Spirit a good gift? The Spirit is testifying, always testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. All right, let's look to the second thing now. The second testimony, second entity testifying is the water. And this is a little bit more interesting. Now, this is the more objective, okay? Now, scholars are divided. Some say that the water here is a reference to Jesus' baptism. You know, that moment where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and God declared in a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. So some scholars think that, uh, that this is the moment that's being talked about. And then other scholars, and I, I tend to move this way, all right, think that what's being talked about is Jesus' baptizing ministry. So not the moment he was baptized, but all the baptizing of others that he did. So if you remember in John chapter three, John the Baptist has been baptizing people. He's been declaring, hey, the kingdom of God is coming and you need to repent of your sins, make straight the way of the Lord, right? Make a straight path in your heart for him to come in and do his work. And as John is declaring that, people are coming in droves and they're responding. There's this moment, John chapter three, where John's disciples, because they're humans just like us, they want the crowd to keep coming to them. And they notice that Jesus now is drawing more people than John. And he's baptizing them. In other words, Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God not is coming, the kingdom of God is what? Here, because I'm here. The kingdom has come. Now, what are you going to do? And people are repenting of their sins. They're turning to Jesus. They're coming to him. They're listening to him. He's having an effective ministry in their life. And John's disciples, they say, um, hey, John, more people are going to Jesus than are coming to us, presumably because they're thinking like, this is a problem. And do you remember the great words of John in John 3, verse 30? He says, I'm, I'm, the, the groom is here. I'm just like the, the, you know, the groomsman. And I'm overjoyed that he's here, and what does he say? He must become greater, and I must become less. He must increase, and I must decrease. What a, I mean, what an awesome man. The scriptures actually say there's no one born of men greater than John the Baptist. That's pretty amazing. High praise, yes? Yeah, so, so listen, when then Jesus is baptizing 
folks and declaring the kingdom is here and it's among you. What John means then when he says the water testifies, the ministry of Jesus testifies and the effectiveness of that ministry, what he's saying is when we look at what Jesus did and taught and all that he was while he lived on earth, that's what te is testifying to us. You can look at all these objective realities, all these things that he did that show you that he's the son of God, that there's no one like him. I remember being probably eight, nine years old, seven, eight, nine years old, somewhere in there. And I just remember, I don't remember all my words. I remember somebody asking me something to the effect of why I believed him. All I remember that I knew to say was because there's no one like Jesus. Because when I read about him, when I, say, I just remember being fascinated by him from the very beginning. From the second I picked up the Bible and started to read about what he did and what he said, I never encountered anyone like him. And I wanted him. I just wanted to know him. And that's the Spirit's work, right? Coming to the heart. Listen, let me give you an example of how this works. When you, when you look at the work of Jesus, the water, and you see, and it testifies that he's the son of God. When I moved to Chicago, I, I graduated from undergrad and went to seminary in Chicago, and I'd lived in the South my whole life, so I had no idea what cold weather was like, um, real cold weather, and I got there, and I made mistake after mistake as it pertained to cold weather. So I bought all these clothes for cold weather, and I got there the first day. I moved there in January, January 4th of 2000, which if you move from Dallas to Chicago in January, that's a mistake. And I remember walking downtown Chicago and the wind was whipping through the buildings. And my mom and dad had driven up with me to help me take some loads of stuff up there. And uh, so we were gonna say our goodbyes. And I remember we had to duck into a building because the wind was whipping so hard. It was so painful. And my dad just looked at me and he's like, Dallas has got a great seminary. Are you sure you don't wanna come home? I remember thinking I was so tempted in that moment because it was just so cold. The next day, again, for like first full day in Chicago, it snows. And so I was like, all right, well, one of our jobs, I lived at a Jewish synagogue, which is a whole nother story. Um, but our, one of our jobs was to shovel the snow. And so I went and started with these four other guys that I lived with. We started shoveling snow. And you know how when you shovel the snow, you keep hitting the grooves in the sidewalk? Well, okay, so I turned to my roommate, Dale, who's from Wisconsin. And I said to him, hey, Am I doing this wrong? To which he said, you've never shoveled snow before? And I said, no. And he said, there's no trick, just shovel the snow. And I was like, okay, good to know. But I was so convinced that I was doing it wrong, but he was my coach. Dale was my coach in all things cold, okay? So we're like a week in, I'm wearing long underwear under my jeans to class every day. And it's so hot in class. I'm like pulling the legs up. And I'm doing this, so I'm like, it's so, so I go to Dale, and I'm like, Dale, how do you not, like, how do you stay warm outside but not burn up inside when you go in and they got the heater? And he's like, we don't wear long underwear unless it's below zero. And I was like, oh, okay. So here's what I learned. All that Dale did and knew proved that he was a son of Wisconsin. And all that I did proved that I was a son of Texas who knew nothing about the cold. That's exactly what John is saying. When you see the water, when you see all that Jesus did and its effectiveness, it's the testimony that he's the son of God. Just think for a minute. Let's just look at a few things. Think about the teaching ministry of Jesus. When you read what he says, are you not, do your hearts not burn within you when you read what he says about the world 
and God and the truth, like those disciples on the road to Emmaus. What did they say? Didn't, didn't our hearts burn within us when we heard him talk about God and God's plan and everything he did? Remember in Matthew chapter seven, he's just given the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five, six, and seven. And Matthew seven twenty eight. just right after that, the people who are listening to him, they say something, and it's repeated a couple times in the Gospels. They say, who is this? He teaches like someone with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. Now, you and I hear that, and we're like, oh, not like the scribes and Pharisees. They're literally saying the most educated, godly men in their minds that they could possibly think of, they're saying they pale in comparison to the way Jesus talks. What about the people that gather around Jesus? You ever think about that? Among his 12 disciples, he has a tax collector and a zealot. Those are opposite ends of the political spectrum of that day. One who wants to support Rome and one who wants to overthrow Rome, right? And he has poor fishermen, uneducated, plying their father's trade because they were not good enough to become sort of advanced in the religious system of the day. And so they're back fishing with their dads poor, lower socioeconomically. And he has Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man whose grave he's buried in. He appeals to the rich and the poor. He has the Pharisees even, Nicodemus, and eventually Saul, who would become Paul. Think about the people that gathered around Jesus of all types. You know, the scriptures are just screaming out, he's for you. He's not just for that kind of person or this kind of person. He's, he's for everybody that encounters Jesus and, and listens is overwhelmed. What about his love and compassion? This is God walking the earth at a time where not children were not held in high value and even his disciples try to send children away. And what does Jesus say? Let the children come to me. You need to come sit on my lap and just have a good time with me and I'm gonna teach them and instruct them and love them because you know what? I'm even gonna tell you that you won't enter my kingdom unless you're like one of them. A woman who's been sick for 12 years and unclean ceremonially and no one can touch her or be around her and Jesus heals her in great compassion, sends her away well. And a rich religious leader whose daughter is dying and everyone makes fun of him because she's already died. And he says, <laughs> she's only sleeping. In my account of things, she's only sleeping because death is like sleep to me. I wake people up from the dead. It's what I do. Pretty amazing. All of those things, do they not cause something in your heart to go that he's, he is not like anyone else? Jesus is different. He is the very son of God. That's what John is trying to get at appeal to your heart in that way. And then the last testimony now we come to is the blood testifies. And this is probably not surprising that the testimony of the blood is the, pointing to the cross. And what John is saying is it's the cross that does a work of, of testifying to you that Jesus is the son of God. Now, you might expect that he would say the resurrection is the evidence that Jesus is the son of God. In fact, Paul in Romans chapter one, verse three and four, when he wants to be more objective in his argument, he actually says, Jesus has been proved, that's strong language, proved 
to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Points to the resurrection as this stalwart piece of evidence that if he's been raised from the dead, you need to believe that he's the Messiah, that he's the savior, that he's the son of God. But John does something interesting because again, what's he, he's aiming more at our hearts, I think, than he is just at making an objective airtight case because he doesn't say the blood and the resurrection. He just says the blood. He points to the cross. And what he's saying is every time you encounter the cross of Jesus, there is something about that cross that compels you to believe and reminds you, believer, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and you're not foolish for having your heart compelled in that direction. Let me tell you how I think this works according to the scriptures. And again, at the risk of being too linear here, just helps our minds understand a little bit if we kind of walk step by step. The cross does a couple things. When you look at it, the first thing that usually happens is you recognize that that is what sin requires. You look at, you just almost close your eyes and picture the cross of Jesus and the first thought that often occurs is, I deserve that. What, he, what that experience was for him, I deserve it. And then as you linger on the cross, the second thing that usually happens is the next thought that occurs is, and he doesn't deserve it. I deserve it. He does not deserve it. You set your eyes on the cross. And we just sang about the cross a lot, right? We were just singing about our eyes being on the cross and considering the blood because the more we do that, the more we recognize those two things. And then a third thing that naturally transpires from those two is if I go, I deserve it. He does not. The third thing that usually will then sort of kick in is an understanding, well, if he didn't deserve it, then he must have been dying for some reason other than his own sin. He must have died for me. He must have died as payment for the sins of man. That's how the blood then works in us and on us. And so what John is saying is, go back to the cross, go back to the blood and be reminded again and again and again. Don't grow weary of singing about it. Here's the hard part. Church family, can I tell you this? If you're reading through the Bible chronologically this year, that's my reading plan this year. I'm reading through the Bible in a year chronologically. And today, by no coincidence, the reading was the crucifixion. And so that was what I was pondering and reflecting on this morning before coming to worship with you. And here's what I find every time, and it never changes. It is so hard to keep my eyes set on the cross because it's painful. Every time we look on the cross, there is a mixture of pain and agony. We want to look away, don't we? Because the sufferings are too great. And it's daunting to keep our eyes on one we love suffering. No one likes to watch someone they love suffer, right? Every time we look to the cross, we are watching the one we love most suffer. And we know that we're the cause of it. And it's really difficult to keep our eyes there, but we have to. We have to keep our eyes there because the other thing that happens, and it's right that it does, is there is that mix of sorrow, but also the joy of the freedom that you know was purchased for you on that cross. So you are considering the blood and the sorrow of it and experiencing the joy of it. You are experiencing the hopelessness of it as it pertains to Jesus and also the great hope that has now been birthed in your life from it. All of those things mixed together in such a way that cause you to say, that's an injustice that's taking place to the one that I love, and yet he endured it willingly, and I experienced the joy and the peace of what he has done there. And that is 
unlike anything else in all the world. Every other religious system grants you some way of coming to know God through your own efforts and intellect and effort. And the cross cries out, there's nothing you can do. Turn again to me. So friends, those are the three testimonies. The spirit testifies Jesus is the son of God. The water testifies Jesus is the son of God. And the blood testifies that Jesus is the son of God. Now listen to the conclusion that Paul then draws from it. Because in verse nine and 10, he then says, what are you going to do with this? If you believe, you'll have eternal life. But if you don't believe the testimony that Jesus is the son of God, he makes no bones about it. You are calling God a liar. He's the one testifying through the spirit. He's the one testifying through the water. He's the one testifying through the blood. Unless you have any kind of misgivings about this, he says, look, I want you to understand this testimony is so sure, it's so clear, it's so mine that if you deny it, you are, you're not just saying, well, that's good for you, but not for me. You are calling God a liar. That's a very big thing to do. He makes it very clear that is what we do when we deny that testimony. And then he goes on to say, whoever has the son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have eternal life. He's saying it's there, it's extended to you, but there's no other pathway. I'm not extending a second way, a third way, a fourth way. I'm extending to you reconciliation to me through my son. And if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life. It's sure, it's certain, you never have to doubt it. And the testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood say you are no fool to believe and have your heart compelled to Jesus and eternal life is in fact yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can ponder your word today. I pray that um, as we have sought to understand it, that you and your mercy and through your spirit would grant us even further understanding, quicken our hearts, quicken our minds to understand. We admit that our hearts are not moved in the way that they should be, and we need you to move them. And so we pray that you would take and do exactly what you said you would do in Ezekiel when you said that this new covenant in the blood of Jesus would come with tender hearts. You take hearts of stone out of us and replace them with tender hearts. And we pray that you would do just that today. Make us tender to all that you have for us, all that you want for us. Help us to walk in it. And we wanna praise you now. We wanna sing and declare your value, your worth, and your goodness. Thank you for the testimony of the spirit and the water and the blood. We receive those testimonies and we reply that you are the son of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.